Welcome to, uh, what's it, what, a Development Hell. Are we keeping the Welcome name? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am this week's host, Spike Kittrell, and on the left side of my Zoom call is, of course, is Richard Humphrey. On the right side is Kyle Anderson, and we are, as I've already said, Development Hell. I should never be put in charge of introing this show. We are a show about... Um, movies and media's long road to completion and, and exhibition and release. And today we are talking about probably the most difficult movie to ever make ever. Um, <laughs> 1979's Apocalypse Now, directed, produced, co-written, and even scored by Francis Ford Coppola. Truly a film by... Yeah, no, it like and like and and mostly finance out of pocket too, and like on screen, <laughs> he's like in it for the first like four seconds. <laughs> that, no, that is a great cameo. That's yes, a great director that's the cameo. best cameo I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it, I when it it took me out because I in like researching the movie, I've seen his face and pictures of him on set. So my first instinct was like. They made like a this is a major goof that he's in the shot. <laughs> you added to the goof section of IMDb. 44 minutes in, you can see director Francis Coppola directing down. the actors. Um, no, this is sort of one of those movies that's held as like not only the best one of the best movies ever made, but one of the most torturous productions. And we all were at different levels of sort of having seen it and richard you hadn't seen it ever yeah um i've known like of it and it became one of those things where it was like people tell me how great it is so i never watched it and hot take guys this movie's fucking good <laughs> <laughs> this movie's so fucking good i thought he was gonna come in and be like well it's no it's no toy soldiers <laughs> <laughs> and i was gonna be like what guys let me tell you uh, bottom Fox tier coppola yeah, uh, Apocalypse Now is no kids. Let me tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> this is good, but did you see Coppola's work in the 90s? That's when he turned it on. <laughs> I when, when I was doing like shitty gigs after film school, uh, I was doing, I was editing for this like children's news network. I think it was like news for kids. <laughs> I, rem- I remember that. <laughs> I think it was to make kids into like young Republicans, but... Uh, yeah, the guy, the guy who ran it, um, everybody was like, yeah, he was a film producer. He was a film producer. And then I finally talked to him and he was like, yeah, I, uh, I produced a lot of films for Francis Ford Coppola. And I'm like, oh, my God, when? And he's like, about uh, you know, 1991 onward. <laughs> was Rainmaker, like... Jack. There was this one about a car. <laughs> he doesn't even know the names of them. <laughs> yeah, it was like about a man in his dream. I don't know what it was called. No, and it's weird because I was talking about this, like, it's weird that he made the three, like, three of the best movies ever made in a row within within six years and then never made, arguably never made a great movie again. And, it, and would very sporadically make it's, good It's movies. truly like, like watching somebody, like, longboard down a huge hill. 
and you're like oh my god they have so much like they have all the momentum in the <laughs> fucking world and then they fishtail yeah. out and just tumble the rest no of the and you can see how a movie like making a movie like this would make you maybe never want to make a movie ever Dude, again. I I did a forty eight hour film project and I wanted to fucking kill myself by the end. I of don't it. understand how you frame one of these shots and then have any creative energy in the rest for the rest of your life. <laughs> Forever, like, and knowing where he is, like everybody dripping with sweat in this movie. That's not like they're oh. not oiling people up before shots. Like that's just whatever. No, like, the, guy, the guy who made this movie also made Godfather three. <laughs> yeah, <and Jack. laughs> that's what's crazy. Like, yeah, but Jack is like an achievement in American cinema. Now, now, right? now, so... Jack, Jack, Jack that, no, that's is a fourth a, masterpiece. That's a yeah, prequel that's, to yeah. Jack and Jill, right? Yeah, no, that's why I love it. He <laughs> never is got it... to make Jill. They never finished the trilogy. <laughs> the no, Jill I think, I think, Don't sort of the rainmaker. <laughs> the the rainmaker was supposed to have a sort of split like ending, where at the end you see Jill at a bar. <laughs> and then we know now that you know a sequel secret sequel to jack um so but apocalypse yeah you know now, the trilogy and, and... jack rainmaker jill <laughs> <laughs> so francis ford coppola comes out of that other wave of the new hollywood the sort of scorsese and then his close friends his real close friends seem to be lucas and spielberg um, and and uh, Milius and John Milius was sort of the writer. They all kind of he was like a Chris McQuarrie at the time, where he just secretly rewrote every good action movie, yeah. but had credits on the bad ones, like like Dude. only the trashy oh, like ones James were Gunn. actually, yeah, 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 exactly. Dude, Milius um, is uh, other than probably all the shitty like problematic stuff. I'm sure he's uh, accustomed to. I fucking love that guy's whole vibe. I mean, yeah, he sort of built. He's like yeah, sort of the author Silver's of vibe. Right, yeah, he's sort of the <laughs> author of like the the bro movie. Hell of like yeah. where we're at now. I don't think we have um a a horde of Zack Snyder fans without the work of John Milius. Yeah, dude, there's no AVP without Milius, baby. <laughs> nah, dog. Uh no, cuz John Milius was sort of typically the writer. He directed a few movies um but he wrote Dirty Harry, Red Dawn, uh and wrote and directed Conan the Barbarian. Um, and oh. he was, uh, he sort of ta was tasked with writing an adaptation of heart of darkness, which is not a war movie. Uh, he basically took the skeleton of this sort of kind of epic adventure through into sort of madness and, uh, and turned it into a Vietnam war movie. And this is still when the Vietnam war was happening. Yeah. It's like about like the African spice trade or something like that. Like it's about like going through the jungle and that's like basically all they really took from it. Right, and which is all that Milius would want and to take. And surfing, yeah, yeah, and you got to add surfing and loving the smell of stuff. <laughs> but also and like, also, yeah, and also like a French plantation where you do opium. Gardenias. Oh, so we should get that out of the way. That that <laughs> this is another similar to his friends. I think especially Lucas. That this is the project he has chosen to revise constantly, and so there is the two and a half hour theatrical cut. There was then what was called uh, Redux, the Apocalypse Now Redux. And then the third cut was Apocalypse Now, the final cut, 
which I be- and Richard, you watched the final cut, right? Yes, I'd love I it did. if he named it like Apocalypse Now, Final, Final, Underscore, Render, Final, <laughs> yeah, or Fuck, 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 Final, yeah. Fix, <laughs> Final V10, yeah, dot MOV, um, and so, and I can't imagine as great as this movie is, and as much as I like to think that a great movie can't be too long, I can't imagine this movie being any longer than two and a half hours. I um, I was watching it and I went, you know, beat for beat, this movie doesn't have to be as long as it is, but I'm okay. <laughs> beat for beat, like there's this is like a movie that is kind of beatless, where it's like it's meant to just kind of drone and then horrify and drone. But yeah, but it's also just like it, it's also just takes place in three different layers. You know, it has the very like uh, like the way a journey goes across a timeline. I think having seen Ad Astra and comparatively them like storylines being similar was able to like, all right, so it's sort of like you go here and it's sort of like a Joseph Campbell hero's journey thing. He's going to do this and then he's going to do this. And so like, I was like, oh, so there was just really needed no, we didn't need to take this long between step seven and eight, but I'm okay that we did. Sure. (laughs) And it's, it's interesting that this is a, this is a weird movie that has become a structure. Mm-hmm. where Ad Astra is, you know, Apocalypse Now in Space, or Silence is Apocalypse Now with Priests. You know, this sort of, it's its its own weird structure that's almost like a lopsided first and second act, a before and after the mythic figure. Yeah, when the, uh, when the glass shatters, basically, you know. Yeah, and, and you face reality. And I think that if you compare those, I know we're comparing one, movie from the 70s to two movies from the last four years but it's so impact the i think brando is the only one who is living up to how long you've waited and been worried about what this guy might be like yeah well and the and the filmmaking of the reveal of him too of course which is all by shadow keeping the crown of his head like yes and all of this being at the so 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 demand tell me, of is, Marlon is, Brando. So so talk talk a bit about that because I'm not sure if Richard knows so truly, like I, the extent of Brando's. I want to get. I, I want to take this linearly because it is. This is probably there one of the most lot, dense yeah. nightmares yeah. In, that we're ever going to talk about. So I want to talk about a fun little episode in this movie's story. In 1969, um, Warner Brothers had the screenplay but put it into turnaround, which basically meant like we're not going to make this. Other studios can buy this for what we've already spent on it. Um, cool, cool. So, thing. yeah. So, Milius didn't want to make the movie, and thought that George Lucas was the best to make it because George Lucas at the time was this experimental political. Milius wrote this like disgusting dredge into madness and they're like so do you want to make it he's like no <laughs> no no no. I, but i got a friend a rich friend from san francisco who would love yeah. to he's yeah, really he drops, like a, he drops it off like a baby at a fire station just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, like I'm, I'm good <laughs> no he's like a little kid where he's like you were the last to touch it you have to direct it <laughs> i want to go smoke dope in malibu later <laughs> I gotta write a movie about a gun that walks around town. <laughs> um, so, but Lucas w- did take it on. He just didn't really have power to make it. At this point, 
Lucas had not made Star Wars or even American Graffiti, and Coppola had not made much of anything worth. He hadn't Wait, made The Godfather. George Lucas didn't have a good eye or take on the Vietnam War. Okay, so here was his take on the Vietnam War because it seems like had he been allowed to make what he wanted to do, it would have been more of a disaster than this production. So uh, he approached Apocalypse Now as a black comedy and intended to make the movie after he made THX 1138. Um, And this was in 1971. They scouted the Philippines and intended to shoot the movie in the rice fields between Stockton and Sacramento and on location in South Vietnam, fake documentary style with real soldiers. And this was while the war was still happening. So he wanted to go to Vietnam with ostensibly undercover with fake soldiers. He wanted to do Tropic Thunder. He basically wanted to do what the director wants to try to do in Tropic Thunder. Amazing. Which is, let's just go play Vietnam in Which Vietnam. Which is also probably like like the, the surfing scene when they're like, go, when he's like, go check out those fucking, <laughs> those six foot breaks. Like that's probably along the same lines where they're like, could you go, could you go run over there with the, with the light meter? <laughs> and they're like, well, there's Mayans. It's like, right, but we need to know how many stops over. No, there. yeah, he would have directed it like. <laughs> like Kilgore he would have just like why is this guy so blasé like I don't know he thinks we're making a comedy (laughs) um and this was going to be for two million dollars as opposed to the movie which was budgeted at 16 and ultimately cost over 25 I love that adjusted though what's that two million adjusted George Lucas being just like George Uh, 1971 he could stretch two mil well, Lucas stretched eight mil into Star Wars, so I don't think that is the craziest I mean, that's, part of that's its plan. Still only twelve. Like that's still not right? much. That's still very low budge. No, to drop I mean, yeah, like it and this is again twelve million to send these artists into Vietnam right next to the Vietnam War. <laughs> um so the studio wasn't into that. Um and Lucas was like, Well, I have stuff about teenagers in space, and they're like, Well, that's gonna work just fine. <laughs> Um, he's like what if uh, what if Yoda and they were like go on <laughs> go on will you have to shoot this in Vietnam no 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 <laughs> alright <laughs> what if that's at the beginning of Empire he's like dying in the snow and Obi-Wan's ghost is like you need to go to Saigon <laughs> you need to learn the ways of the force Saigon Tatooine Saigon as far as fucking Tatooine <laughs> Um, so this sort of sits for years between then and around 76, um, or 75, sorry, I'm going to try to avoid years because this is another movie where, um, I think similar to star Wars and a lot of these famous movies, jaws and close encounters where it's been told and retold so much that a lot of details are basically myth. Like we don't know. We don't really like some things seem too trustworthy yeah, sources Jaws seem to be giving myth. completely different ideas, right? <laughs> uh, Jaws was one of those where Milius just like showed up in the last week and rewrote the whole thing. Jaws isn't a movie; it's a four-second ride at Universal Studios. 
Yeah, people keep saying there's a film. I've never seen it. You've never, never seen it. it. I've written it. ever seen it. Yeah, I've experienced claims he wrote it. But John Milius says a lot of shit. We're going to start listening to John Milius now. Oh, yeah. John Milius wrote that ride. I wrote all of New Girl. Come on now. I'm (laughs) I'm the showrunner. Come on. I get it. Okay. Okay. Jaws exists. So. That's the new like hashtag we get go like conspiracy we get going is that Jaws yeah, didn't Jaws. doesn't exist. Just fully, it's only that shot of the guy who throws out the chum and then stands up. That's all I've ever seen. No, yeah, no, it's it's a there's no more. John Milius wrote that gif. Yeah, he wrote. <laughs> he wrote. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Greatest pitch I've ever heard. Not a full movie. <laughs> Spielberg's like, what's that about? He's like, I, I would imagine they realize it's the the shark is too big, but I'm not gonna write the rest of this. <laughs> you can just imagine why he would. I'm too want busy not boat. directing Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Francis was the last to touch it. <laughs> um. So speaking of that, uh, now Coppola and Lucas have power. Uh, because they've made. Star Wars and The Godfather, and uh, Coppola is launching his own sort of uh, production company called Zoetrope, and he's trying to find the first project to get <laughs> off the ground, and he just is like, well, we can spend eight months developing an original idea, or we have this script that's ready to go right now. So he decides to try to make Apocalypse Now. He asks Lucas to make it, and Lucas doesn't want to make it, um, and... He asks Milius to make it, and Milius again is just, I don't want, and I, can ima- I, I can't imagine looking at this script and thinking, I want to do this. This just seems, it seems like you'd read this and you'll, I feel like this will kill me. I think um, I can't look at this script and give it like an artist's point of view because I know that Apocalypse Now exists and how hard it was to make. Mm. So I couldn't yes. look at it and be like, I wonder how hard this would be to make. It's the best case for cinema as something that transcends its craft in that I don't understand how this was ever a screenplay. Yeah, I, yeah, I it feels like it's people existing because everyone is true. Exterior <laughs> like jungle. We hold next, for yeah. 45 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie in Iron Man famously no script. Yes. And all of this was this was arguably the first mumblecore movie. <laughs> There was a whole scene where they sit in a garage and talk about girlfriends. Oh, wow. There's a lot of Charlie over there. Wow. <laughs> hey, listen to this ukulele. I love this. Charlie, don't play ukulele. Smells like victory. <laughs> Cut to black. Um, so he $2 couldn't get anyone to. Dollars. Pretty good. Co- Coppola mil. couldn't get anyone to direct it, so he thanos it. He did it himself. And <laughs> he put on a big glove and was like, I'll direct Apocalypse Now myself. And he immediately <laughs> just started getting tremors. Like, this shouldn't have happened. <laughs> um, and uh, so Coppola wanted it to be, uh, as he said, the definitive statement on the nature of modern war. Uh, and and he says a lot of things about you know this. It's about good and evil. It's about the American ideal of society. See, I think that the, it's that's one of those... the kind of shit you read a director say about a bad movie, and you're like, oh, they really thought. Right. And then this movie, you're like, they did it though. No, like... yeah, it, it's like it's amazing that this exists as abstractly as an artist would want it to be. Yes, 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, and it I is wonder, not and, and like we talked about text. foreshadowing that Brando stuff, I wonder how much of that is incidental. Well, and that was sort of Coppola's brand, at least on the first Godfather and this, of just, he's so good at wrangling chaos. Um, Gee, I mean, directing that many Italians, am I right? <laughs> you gotta have a good charisma. Um, and I and he published the 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 Godfather Notebook, which is his production diary and and basically like battle plan for making the Godfather. And what's so shocking to read it is he's so meticulous that I would imagine this is the antithesis of the way he wants to work. In a, with Apocalypse Now, where he has no control, um, he he once he once said that um, he was like, once the helicopters were in the air, I had to call action pretty quick. Like that's terrifying. <laughs> where like I can't suddenly want to change the light once the helicopters are in the air. Well, God, and let me, oh, that's that's fucked. the that's the main thing that I remember from uh, Hearts of Darkness is that 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 is the real the actual military of that area. And they right. were in a war during the time of filming, so they would be like mid shot. All the helicopters are like, you know, going, going <laughs> perfectly, going perfectly fine in formation, and then they suddenly just peel out because they have to like go fight the war. Yeah, <laughs> and also, they don't understand. I got a like hard going... out at war. Yeah. <laughs> when war understand. starts, I gotta, I gotta get out. I can't do lunch. We gotta just mush through. Um, so it was eventually approved for uh, at a budget of $16 million. Much of that came out of his pocket, which I don't understand. How, how big is that pocket? The Godfather and the Godfather Part 2 and someone and he's like, I want to make another movie with Robert, uh, Robert Duvall and Marlon Brando. And the studio's like, we're not sold. <laughs> well, I'm not too sure about this. Um, and they shot it in the Philippines for the low costs of just labor and shooting and all that, as well as it had similar terrain to, to Vietnam, which, and obviously the Vietnam war had basically all but ended at this point. Um, Oh, you mean we had lost? Yeah, we backed out. We realized they were good without us and we patted them on the back and left. Um, a mutual so, respect for both sides earned along the way. I do. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he meant to film the big party they threw, but yeah, the big yeah, goodbye they, party. See, shit this, it's weird that this movie ignores like how chill and dope we like it ended, how, how like good terms we were on with everybody. No. Yeah. This seems to have an agenda that thinks we shouldn't have been doing what we were doing. Yeah, dude. Liberal media, bro. Can't no. Yeah. Them. It started early. Um, so casting on this was difficult, There's, but you see that a lot with a lot of these movies of, of the long story. Oh yeah, this guy was once offered, but, um, it was originally, he had the idea of doing it with, um, or it was at one point going to be Al Pacino, Robert Duvall and Brando. It was going to be a full on, like the cast of good of Godfather was going to go to war. I don't, you know, <laughs> war. uh, war, it was gonna, Steve McKe- Steve McQueen, Al Pacino and Clint Eastwood were all offered Willard, but refused to leave America for that long a time. And this was when they thought they would be leaving for like two months, uh, which ultimately ended up not being the case. Um, other people were considered for Kurtz, but eventually Brando gets the gig. He was paid $2 million, which what was, what is that in their time, our time? 12, 12. That's a, that's a solid, like 
for for how little he is in the movie. That's not bad. Plus, um, back end. So he, I think, ultimately made nine million more uh, from the movie's. Oh, yeah, profits. he makes so much off the toys. That's um, good. Yeah, <laughs> no, he also signed a deal to get one of every toy. Yeah, <laughs> they made a plush the version toys. of the horror. You get the head of Chef that he throws on his lap. Yes. <laughs> you get, you get all the kids you, want to play with Chef's head. You can collect <laughs> all 94 cameras that Dennis Hopper is wearing. Yeah, they do the pinata as that bull that they that they chop up when, they, when he kills Goose. Hey, so real buffalo. <laughs> really? I kept wondering. I was like, is this yep. a prosthetic or are they just killing nah. a buffalo? No, so I, um, just when, like, they, when they blow up part of that jungle in the beginning, Gina was like, so how are they doing this? They really do. Like, well. <laughs> I think you kind of send a PA. You know how when you close a, a store, you send someone in to like knock on you the bathroom door and make sure there are no customers in there before you really lock the doors? I think you send like a couple PAs to be like, hey, we're going to blow all of this up. <laughs> all of your home is leaving any way you could bounce <laughs> um so yeah no the buffalo was uh was a real buffalo i guess during um um that's upsetting yeah no, I, um... this was the first time i watched it knowing it was real and it's and it's juxtaposed with uh willard killing kurtz so it just made it so upsetting i um I asked a friend of the show, Mitch Holloman, uh, like if you'd ever seen this movie, and he goes, "Is it that movie where they kill that bull on screen?" <laughs> <laughs> Mitch is such a sweet boy. That is how he would see this movie. The horror. The horror. horror. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I mean, that scene. What's crazy is like that is like one of the most insanely violent on-screen things I've ever seen is like watching a cow get hacked to death yeah. on screen. Um, and, and the way it's juxtaposed there is like, and I, I'm sure it's because of how Brando was, but it's all like off screen violence. Like you see him like yeah. jump into a shot with a hatchet and then you see like, like many shots of Kurtz are not even Brando. That's um, yeah. They're Michael Chiklis. They're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael Jacklitz was born. This, produ- this production six, was under the feet. dome, baby. Um. So one one interesting thing is when they started shooting, uh, Harvey Keitel was playing Willard. Um, and a few days into shooting, he ha- it wasn't that clicking. Good, and he would... was having trouble playing it um, passively because the character has to be inherently passive and quiet and internal. Uh, to yeah. to sort of play a character who is mostly expressing through his voiceover later, uh, Kaitel just wasn't having that, wasn't really clicking with that. So he bailed out, and uh, Coppola brings in Martin Sheen, who had recent, who had uh, screen tested for Michael Corleone. Uh, so that was how he knew he at least was great, and I think they had had some talks. So again, these are all like interesting alternate universes of all these movies that could have been fantastic. I um, nothing to complain about Martin Sheen. I think Richard, you were really, it was fun to watch you find this movie over the last few days. And it seems like Martin Sheen really, really gave it to you. I always like, cause I always just knew Martin Sheen as like a good actor. We all knew it. 
And then I watch this movie, I go, oh, this is what they mean. You know, because yeah. he just really just commits harder than any actors. Like, no actor has done what he did in this movie. <laughs> like, Easily, he, which is like throw away the performance, essentially. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, just like, let it go. Like, like the the physical performance when he's like, you know, yeah. I mean? how, how well, passive he is and stuff like to to I'll sprinkle some of these these bits in the opening montage, which I think is this brilliant fake out where you think that you are you see him ruined by what is going to be flashbacks. I remember watching it and even rewatching it. It's like, oh, this is a guy who is in his hotel room and he's just been through shit and we're going to see the flashbacks of what did this to him. And then you reveal that this is him at the beginning. That's him being yeah. stir crazy. That this he guy has no mission. This is, is what it is. The, he's just a yeah. He's a guy who needs something to do. And like I've but known like a lot of, I've known a lot of military people like that, you know. And it's yeah. like that's what the military does to your brain. Like they make your purpose be the next mission. And so he's like, right now I'm purposeless, so I need to do something. And so he I need to feel alive. A distracting Harrison Ford to give me a mission. Yeah, dude. like what the heck, dude? <laughs> he's just sort You're of talking. in the club. He's he's in America. He's sort of Lucas's guy. Yeah, he was out there building another door for a set, and they're like, "You know yes. what? Why don't you read this scene?" Yeah, <laughs> you can read almost all your dialogue like you didn't learn your lines. I feel like every actor in that scene has made weird <laughs> decisions about how to play the part. They're all playing it like guy? the air conditioning is broken. They're that all playing it the like they're mad eyes. at each other for no reason. That guy with the with the bowl cut, the weird eyes. It oh, the, the, like he oh you mean old Sheldon? It, yeah. <laughs> it does feel that, like in that scene you walked in on something really awkward like one of them caught that dude <laughs> masturbating right before that scene and no, then he walked in and they're like well we gotta give this guy his the, fucking mission we're gonna the talk whole about time weird the whole time i just go that man is not tough enough to order a hit on anybody no i know that <laughs> like, is an uncut gem scenes where every character looks really like makes you uncomfortable just sitting still where you're like, I feel like they dragged you from four feet from the sidewalk, and I don't know why you're in focus in this movie. Please, please, let's move on. Yeah. No, um, I, I wonder. I have a theory that there might there are certain scenes in movies that have garnered more Google searches of like, wait, is sure, that fucking. And I feel like this is one of those scenes because he's Harrison Ford is in so many. Like, I don't know if they ever cut to a close up of that character. Like, he's only in wide shots, and I think he's like even wearing sunglasses or something for no he's got like very (laughs) short hair he's like skinnier than we've ever seen him he's more muted than he's ever been and he's not talking out of the side of his mouth he's just sort of talking no he's never played this guy i mean but that's his back when this is this is pre i'm harrison ford so he is just doing a this is more of a gig this is more when he was just a working actor when he needed it because like at some point he treats every role like I don't need this movie. This movie needs me. And right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, this... that's when his movies start to suck is when he realizes he doesn't need the movies anymore. Now, even though this movie was this movie, he filmed his scenes before Star Wars, but the movie came out after Star Wars. And only three years after Damn. this movie, he's starring in Blade Runner. Damn. God, his career. 
So, oh, so in the hotel room montage in the beginning, uh, this was shot later in the production, and Martin Sheen is actually wasted. He he went through a pretty massive drinking spell through the entire movie. It was a bit of a party movie, but he wasn't so much partying as he had a problem. So he asked for them to film this scene as he was drunk, thinking he could exercise these demons on camera. What ended up happening was he accidentally punched and broke the mirror. Um, Oh my God. As you do. at, At one point, charged off screen and attacked Francis Ford Coppola, the director of the movie. <laughs> um, this this did not make the final cut, but I hear it's some interesting footage, and I believe it's on some Blu-ray somewhere that you can find that that piece well, of of film. The final cut that was released last year, uh, like the twenty nine, which is what you watched. It. Yeah, it's like the definitive one, I guess. In the special features, I think we got some of that going on. So I'll check. Not right now. You'll have to forgive me. Creatures. I'm t- I'm trying not to eat on Mike. Sorry, guys. Um, Who's Mike? So, a fur. <laughs> Damn it. Um, okay, so the first huge setback uh, for the movie was a month into shooting, Typhoon Olga came through, and this is the statistic. <laughs> this is the only number I can find, and I'd like to discuss it. Olga. It says it wrecked forty to eighty percent of the sets. So did I. That bro. differential is, that is crazy. <laughs> it's either if, half or almost all. If, if like that's the kind of thing a shithead kid says, like, did you clean your room? I cleaned forty to eighty percent of it. Now, can I play games? <laughs> forty to eighty percent off MSRP. <laughs> These couches are move to go sectionals at half price. <laughs> like, that's that's, yeah, that's not a like, furniture store. This is that's weird. like the real percentage of chance I have to like get a credit card. You know, right. <laughs> your, your blood oxygen level is fifty five to ninety five percent. So this apparently wrecked a lot of the set. The production designer Dean Tavolero <laughs> so said he said. Uh, it started raining harder and harder until finally it was literally white outside and all the trees were bent at 45 degrees. Um, the major thing this destroyed was the Playboy Playmate, Playmate set, which they had planned a lot of shooting there. That was one of the more legit. That's kind of the most extras with the exception of the, the very end, mm-hmm. especially all in one go. So that was had to be completely rebuilt. That USO most, scene is insane. It's. I think that it's the first time I... I felt the case for like the idea of bringing, you know, there's always the joke of, or or it gets parodied a lot of, oh, you bring the girls out to dance for the soldiers. But by that point of the movie, you're like, I can understand showing all these men a version of kind humanity real quick. Yeah, It's like, please show them a pretty girl to remind them that life is okay. That they're, that they don't just fucking eat each other alive right (laughs) and not in like a barbarian and i you know obviously a soldier may interpret that in in a way but i felt just from watching the movie it was so nice to see something not dirty and full of hate (laughs) yeah Um, wait in 
in my version, they bum rushed the stage. <laughs> no, I mean the women themselves, not the. Oh, okay. No, I uh, no, that's like... what I'm saying. Is eventually the 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 dirty hate wins. <laughs> yeah, dirty. <laughs> Thus, hate apocalypse now. Through. Um. No, those women land, and I was like, those men are going to rush the stage because they don't know what to do with themselves. And I was like, yep, there it goes. So I believe in the in the Redux cut. So the Redux cut has basically all the footage they could put together, and the final cut is the Redux minus 20 minutes. And in the Redux, they encounter the playmates again. They have apparently like run out of fuel, and they're in some sort of wacky sitcom scenario. <laughs> And that's like, they just run to them like, we're lost. I don't know what's going on. This is, again, the kind of thing you cut. Yeah. Um, uh, most of the cast and crew went back to the States. There's a lot of going back and forth to the United States. It just costs too much money to keep them there. So it's che- it was cheaper to just keep cast and crew kind of on retainer in America. Uh, and some of them stayed as long as two months. Retainer um, in America. At this point, they are a million... They are a month into shooting, and they are $2 million over budget and six weeks behind. Not bad. <laughs> I think that's a win. <laughs> Not bad. I think we can turn this around, guys. We just have to get some shots off today. We'll be, we can make that <laughs> schedule back up. If we could develop it's... the shots of the trees, we could send those off, and they'll what be are happy. We, what are we? We're only, we're only three weeks behind? They're like six weeks. Six weeks, huh? And how long yeah, have we been I... filming? They're like four weeks. And they're like, how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Coppola filed an insurance claim for typhoon damage, which only amounted to 500 grand. My name is Typhoon um, Damage. I'm running for city. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he took out an additional loan from United Artists, the production company. On the condition that if the film did not generate uh, a box office of over forty million dollars, he would be liable for the losses. Um, oh, sorry, no, sorry, the theatrical rentals of over forty million, which I believe would equate to a box office of one hundred and twenty million. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so this is where Coppola really starts to deteriorate because now his career and like financial livelihood is on on the line here. And it's it's another thing where you can imagine you're like I made the Godfather I made the Godfather too I could have made another thing that took place in buildings what <laughs> yeah. am I doing why did I touch that script last <laughs> it hard, just like, when I hard thought cut. I was out they pull me back in smash cut smash Writing, cut to Milius just in fucking Malibu hitting that bog baby not <laughs> <Sure>. a <laughs> care and in they're the like what world. he's like. Writing Red Dawn, he's like, Wolverines, that'd be cool. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. He's um, reading an X-Men comic book, and he goes, Wolverines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Later, this will have Josh Peck in a version of it. Um, <laughs> he says in, that when he authors it. When he puts yeah, he's like, this will be remade screen. with Josh Peck. <laughs> um, All right, so... The moment we've been waiting for in July of that of the first year of shooting, um, Marlon Brando arrived fat. He <laughs> was 300 pounds, uh, which was not the plan. Bert Gosling yeah. did the same thing on Lovely Bones. 
Yes. I think the thing about Gosling is he is not Marlon Brando, no matter how he talks. He really thinks he's Marlon Brando in everything yeah. he does. It's just be Steve McQueen. We're okay with that. Just please take a nap. Um, so not only did Marlon Brando show up fat, he showed up without having read the script or knowing what the movie or the character was all about. It would have been great if he showed up fat and, and he, he, had only, he had only read the book. And he's like, it was about spice trade, so I just started eating spices. I've been, <laughs> you're telling me that I've been eating cumin for six, <laughs> six months for nothing? Do you, do you know how expensive saffron is? You're from Ohio? <laughs> they got great cayenne pepper in Ohio. I got a lot of good garlic powder there. <laughs> this will be three. I think this will be a show of three terrible Brando impressions. Three really As, bad. Despite ones. us all crushing Tyson last week. <laughs> yeah, I got some fan mail from the Tyson episode. People loved the Tyson work. Um, and we got a new listener in Saigon because of it. Which, which I'm having, it. I'm having trouble. You. I'm having trouble playing you, the Saigon. Path, so passively. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Saigon. Uh, Francis, I just you. don't. I just don't think I'm right for this. I don't. Think I'm, I'm just right afraid that they're gonna they're gonna replace me with one of those talented scene brothers. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe both of them. Who knows? Oh my god! Oh no! So Brandon shows Is up that fat. Lawrence Fishburne. He sh- he shows up. <laughs> he looks way too young. <laughs> Has anyone checked Lawrence's ID? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all got a place for my pigeons? So, <laughs> man loves pigeons. Um, so, when Brando shows up, he uh, is 300 pounds and um, producer, um, what is this name? Uh, a producer on the movie said, you couldn't see around him, which is a crazy. <laughs> which is so mean. It's a, it's, it's a sick burn on the greatest actor of the time. Um, but Brando hadn't learned his lines uh, or done any prep. So it's not like he showed up fat. Like this is, this is, that's the Gosling thing where he showed up fat because that was his take. Brando showed yeah. up fat because he'd been eating a lot. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> Brando uh, showed up fat because he stopped trying to not be fat. I, I just had a lasagna. What are we making all in the family? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, he showed up with a cake in his hand. Like, so what are we doing? Um, he asked Fran- Francis had to start from scratch. Um, and he basically like had, he made baby. They had to <laughs> shut down the production for another week while Coppola read Brando the script out loud. So nine hundred people. Took a week where he's like, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But this is the thing where Brando is Brando. His whole kind of shtick other than maybe four performances was trying to get away with things and trying to see what he can like, basically come home to him. Like, honey, guess what? I just got away with. Guess what? They just <laughs> let me do. I did. I didn't. And eventually he, he, he does. He solves this by having the earpiece in his ear where he starts acting with an assistant, reading him his lines on while he's on camera. Uh, this is something he would take with him in Superman in the score 
uh, basically in everything from like the 80s on. He just was like, I don't have to learn my lines. Um, so again, yeah, he's just he got everything out of the way in the the 50s, 60s and 70s. But, but honestly, it's that thing of like uh, you can have that sort of ego if your talent can outweigh it. And every moment, no, he outweighed it. Yeah, like he, his talent outweighs him. If you, at if any you can moment. see around and his like, talent, like it's you can't see around his talent. It's sort of like, God, he's so one other good. actor. One other actor was asked, Is it true he was paid two million? He said, Yes, we paid him by the pound. A lot of people were mean about Brando, <laughs> bunch of teamsters behind that guy laughed. Midway through this I, week, I it doesn't feel weird that he's that size to me when you watch the movie. Correct. No, and I think like, I, an opulent king of this jungle but area. I like, think that we never like see what he looks like. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Is that the yeah. buff body that we see is not Brando? I will say also that uh, that he did not show up. He showed up with hair, and midway through this little <laughs> script reading week, he just shaved his fucking head. <laughs> That was the big idea he brought to the table. And which is another good idea. Had the idea <laughs> that he was going to just improvise most of what he said. So a lot apparently, this is another thing where you can only uh, take this as myth that you can believe or not. A lot of what he is saying in this movie uh is improvised or like heavily disregards what the written word. I um I don't think it's improvised as much as like he was told the lines that morning, like, and he's trying to remember it best, but his talent sure. fills in the holes. Of course. But he was also, the thing is he didn't show up uh, big with that, um, with an attitude about it. He was embarrassed. So he stipulated that they dress him all in black uh, I, I think I read that they were originally going to have him dressed as a green beret, but using mostly uh, authentic costumes, there was no green beret uniform that big, which is why he's wearing a, a black T-shirt. We so so we can. Our team is going to make Star Wars, but we cannot figure out. <laughs> I think a it was more Coppola saying like. I don't think a guy looking like this dressed as a green beret is going to read right. Yeah, there's um, just no fat green beret. And so so Coppola agreed he would not really sh- – and you only see his body once. It's when it sort of tilts up him and he's got the, the camouflage face. And we're all like, the horror. The horror. Whereas most of the rest is – you see his face or you see a body double playing a very imposing figure. Cause Brando wasn't even as tall as Kurtz appears in the dark comedy version. Do you think when he has the face makeup, him and the surfer kid, like have a moment where they're like, nice, nice. Yeah. There's a lot of fist bumps and, and secret handshakes. And I, and I think that, that, that Lucas would be like, Oh great. You're fat. We can really, we can use that. You can kind of stumble around. And- yeah, now that's funny. That this yeah. is a we got a picture here. Uh, like, I bet, like, just like I, Lucas's other f- most famously funny character, Jabba the Hutt. I just think Lucas gets his hands on this movie, and the end of it as a black comedy is like a summer camp, like triathlon event with yes. like <laughs> it's <laughs> with a prank war. 
yeah with like the cambodians and then the uh, and the american yeah. soldiers like trying to see who's going to be camp king yes they put they put skates on the buffalo <laughs> yeah, they still murder it with axes though on camera yeah. cuz that's still that's way funnier in this version no yeah i think it, you can we can all imagine george lucas laughing uproariously when the when the <laughs> buffalo is is sacrificed <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then Marlon Brando wakes up in the middle of a lake on his inflatable bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, "Are you ready for the summer?" <laughs> you two are going to the isolation cabin. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, George and, Lucas would have made heavyweights. They're twins. All right, so. Sorry, long silence. So on the uh, so uh, that Christmas, um, Coppola has a rough assembly of the movie, and he still doesn't quite have an ending. So they go back to the Philippines in uh, the next year, in early 1977, and keep filming. God. On March of that I year, and I'm Sheen, uh, uh, Martin Sheen has a heart attack. Uh, and struggled for a quarter of a mile to got, reach he got told He got told he was going to have to film more of this movie. This is while they're over. This is while this is in oh the Philippines. Oh, my God. Jesus uh, Christ. By that time, he, it was so over budget that even he was worried about stopping production again. Uh, so he did not let that information get to the investors and just claimed that he had suffered heat stroke. Uh, but Coppola was told about this. Coppola felt that he was responsible, so he had a few uh, epileptic seizures following this news. So everyone is falling apart. Wait. Oh, my God. You can get... Wait, you can trigger an epileptic by giving them news? I think under uh, uh, under certain duress can trigger uh, a seizure. Yeah, I'm stress. Um. And I have to imagine I'm like, he what? was not cool as a cucumber in the in the in the early months of 1977. Neither was I. Uh, <laughs> but uh, during that time, Joe Estevez, Martin Sheen's brother, uh, filled in for him and did a lot of the voiceovers in this finished movie. Wait. Uh, and Coppola and all, all three, Coppola and the two brothers can't point out some things uh like who is who in some moments of the movie well, i do think at some point one of them does look like emilio estevez so like i i could see it right yeah it's interesting that that he is um the estevez thing that there's two and two that yeah. martin and joe swapped and then charlie and emilio swapped um the, yeah, it's not like okay, it so, changed much. There's still other people with the. It's it just it didn't separate the famous people when you look exactly like the famous person, you know? Right. <laughs> no, and all the scenes <laughs> managed to look the exact same. It's amazing yeah. that we have four it's of the crazy, exact same person. Strange, strong bloodline that they have. Right. It's tiger blood, I guess. Yeah, they. they, they uh, 100. percent It's Malfoy esque. The way they look. (laughs) Um, Now, this is where I want Richard to take over because another thing is that a major sequence in a French plantation cost hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but was cut from the movie. 
And this was the part where you texted us, like, is this in the real version? Which tells me that it really stands out. So what happens? It sort of, everything sort of, like, stops. And they go through sort of this, like, uh, sort of covered jungle area. And people start shooting. And then the shooting stops. And this, like, French guy comes out and invites them in. And they all come to, like, hang out and sort of, like, rest, you know? And uh, as they're doing it, uh, like Martin Sheen looks up at a balcony and sees this like French woman and he's like super interested in her. And I'm like, oh, they're probably going to fuck later or something. And like they're all having dinner. And then the French guy at the plantation talks about how the French have lost every war, but he refuses to leave that land because like that's his land and he owns it no matter what they say. The French conquered the Vietnamese (laughs) and so this is his land. It was like this really like powerful speech about how he owns this place. And the whole time Martin Sheen's just staring at like the woman in the room. And then later on, they're just like talking. And uh, she says like, we can do that later. And they like flirt a little bit. And then they just do opium. And I was like, oh, the opium is probably in the original part of the movie. But like a lot of this long cut probably isn't because the opium feels like an important way to talk about someone's descent into madness. You know, that like when you get this far into the jungle, why aren't you going to do opiate on a French plantation, (laughs) opium on a French plantation? You know, it's like part of what all the other soldiers were doing. If you're going to get into the mindset of how your target is crazy, aren't you going to follow in these footsteps? He probably got here, too. It's an interesting decision to to cut that. I it's I, it's that sounds cool. Yeah, it I was mean, a I very understand good that yeah. the movie is already long and isn't a you know, it's not Fury Road. It's not like a single. It's not a. It's there's a lot of quiet and there's a lot of uh, sort of dark like introspection in the movie that you can imagine they are kind of on borrowed time by the time they get halfway through the movie um so in your version the final cuts by about three hours yeah it's three hours wild um so principal photography finally ended uh once they had they had written their they'd made their final ending that basically the ending as written was not going to work because of brando's physical shape which is why i think they tried to do a version of with a written ending but with a body double and maybe it helped to bring in the Buffalo as a sort of to fill the space and the editing and sort of a kind of, it reminds me a lot of like psycho where mm-hmm. you think you're seeing a lot of it with the two guys, you think you're seeing a lot of violence, but you're really not. It's just the editing is just disturbing you. Wow. Imagine being told you're too fat. So instead of killing you on screen, we're going to have to kill a cow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that well, way you shots... look buff in comparison. <laughs> those shots where he's sort of in the doorway. Um and he's like backlit. That there's you know no way I mean? that's him. Yeah, there's the no chicklet shots. Him, but that but that body type, the chicklet shots do pull that together. In yeah. A good, in, in a good way. And it's just like yeah, good this is... filmmaking, you know? No, I know. This is sort of like every shot. I don't understand how you just decide where to put the camera like how are you like all right the scene where the goat gets airlifted up out of the (laughs) battle zone how are you like picking a lens for that 
there were a lot of sh- shots in the first sort of raid that they do where they're blasting the music and Duval is going back and forth between the, the waves and the mission. And Robert there are Duval. certain shots that I do not understand how they are not documentary. I don't understand yeah. how a brain can consider all of that detail in terms of like everything in front of that camera is, is fake and fabricated and an artistic decision. And it's, it's unbelievable how just how real it looks. I I know that sounds so, I don't mean to reduce it to that, but that's how I felt like, how does this look like documentary footage? They really fuck up that tiny Vietnamese village too. Sure. But you can imagine too, that there are cameras, there are helicopters for the movie. And then there are helicopters they're filming out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's that sort of layer and sort of I was thinking about that in uh, the beginning of uh, th- this is the dumbest thing and you're going to make fun of me, but uh, of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie when like the Power Rangers are like parachuting, I kept thinking, well, there's other dudes that are parachuting on camera with cameras. Yeah, and they're yeah. doing harder work. That's that Tom Cruise halo jump where another dude jumped out backwards. Yeah, had to jump out backwards and had like basically a camera with like bicycle handles on it to like <laughs> yes. steer it. Yeah. And this story there was um the Halo jump in in Fallout. It's in Fallout, right? Yeah, Fallout. Where they kept doing it. They kept jumping and they the focus was wrong. And this was basically a guy who the operator was a guy who his job was to sort of be that for uh kind of you know, uh, people doing that for fun where they have the, he has the GoPro on his head, but they put a little red camera with a big wide lens on it. And he had to hit five feet from Tom Cruise to make focus. And it was out of focus the whole time. And eventually they realized that the focus puller, the focus, the follow focus remote was disconnecting because of the distance and the follow focus guy had to also jump. So I believe three people jumped. There's a dude in the back, like, like just spinning a little dial as Tom Cruise gets closer and further away. And Tom Cruise is just like sitting on this like throne of just like baby skulls and is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do all of this awesome action. They also <laughs> have a boom operator just flying with like the boom. <laughs> With the biggest dead cat you'll ever see. Like, (laughs) I can't hear any of the wind. I'm I'm getting clean dialogue. No, it's good. I can hear I can hear his clothes rustling. We're good. I can hear me (laughs) shitting my pants real good. Yo, I didn't know how good those mics were until I was like on set and I like farted three times. The sound guy just (laughs) looked over at you. And he was like, dude. And he like made them stop filming and do it all (laughs) all again and reset. (laughs) I was like, damn it embarrassing uh so the movie that was supposed to take four months to shoot wrapped up in may of 1977 after 238 shooting days which is a a bit almost a year yeah Yeah, that's a that's Um, a hawaiian year (laughs) (laughs) their alphabet and Um, their years shorter the budget doubled over 25 million dollars um, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> and Coppola's loan that was based off of uh, the, the theatrical returns was extended by another $10 million. But UA also took out a $15 million life insurance policy on Coppola, who was clearly <laughs> still just deteriorating. 
Um, that's he honestly, offered that's that's a good bet. He offered <laughs> his car house and the Godfather profits um, as security to finish the film. So this dude is mortgaging his legacy now at this point. His Emerald legacy. Um, and after Star Wars had become huge, uh, Lucas eventually helps him out with some finishing funds. Uh, another element of this is that Coppola co-wrote the score. Um, there was originally supposed to be a Japanese composer to write very sort of kind of what we kind of what we get, which is that electronic kind of droning sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but a dispute with a label uh, eventually made that impossible, despite the composer going to the set for a while just to be be with the actors and the crew. Uh, the, that's why it didn't work out. He's like, you should see the place they sent me. It's fucking terrible. The, yeah. It like, goes back to the label. Like, can you make up a reason why I can't work with these people? <laughs> the editor had some troubles. Walter Murch, uh, he had trouble assembling the sound because there were no sound libraries with stereo recordings of weapons. This is when stereo <laughs> surround sound was just starting. So, he had to. They had to create every piece of gunfire from scratch. Oh my God! And again, this was ultimately for stare. They were sort of future proofing, where most theaters couldn't even show it in surround sound. But he had to. They needed all these things in surround sound because they knew this is coming in us in a hot second. Um. The movie kept being postponed and ultimately ended up coming out in 1979. And the overruns had reached uh, $18 million, which Coppola was personally liable for to pay back to um, UA. But he ultimately, I think, obtained the rights uh, to the film in perpetuity. So basically, any all these re-releases, Redux and Final Cut, I think have been ways for him to properly claim sort of home video ah, money makes sense yo coppola collects checks though that whole crew i think knew how to do business right spielberg coppola and lucas made the right deal and they sort of made those deals that no director will ever get again because of this no studio no. will ever three studio heads were fired because of these three guys and the deals they got so, but also Coppola has made more money off his wine than any movie he's made. Well, I mean, and then, and we'll talk about that next week with the, the Coppola winery. <laughs> but, On location. I, mean, is, yeah, I don't know. That's, 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 that's an interesting. Is that true? Yeah. Wow. That, like, that's why that he booze money, dude. Movies. You see that with all these yeah. people, the rock now getting into yeah. it. Cl- Clooney's made more off of his, va- or yeah. his tequila or whatever. Clooney found that tequila by like accident or something, right? He just wanted a private tequila for him and his friends and a bunch of other people thought it was good. So he started selling. Hell yeah. What is that thing that, uh, that the guys from breaking bad sell? Oh, they it's sell tequila. tequila too. I is think, that a tequila? Yeah. yeah. I think so. Dos yeah. hombres. Yeah, you know, because they're, they're two brothers. I don't. I don't know if anybody was stoked for that. Was anybody stoked for that? Well, because nah. the one we, thing they Breaking should be Bad really could have ended with a bang, and it's just had this series of whim- weird whimpers. Well, because it's one of those where it would be great if all these guys, if all these guys retired, 
I think that everything post Breaking Bad that Cranston has done has been humiliating, like has been devastating to motherfucker. If you if you speak ill of Trumbo on this podcast. We'll have an issue. I, I, I've never seen Trumbo. I'm, I'm not going to. No, I don't think anyone. I don't think the editor of Trumbo <laughs> has seen Trumbo. I don't. I, <laughs> I don't think that movie really. There's no one with a poster of Trumbo. That movie's a Shadow Realm movie. Mm-hmm. Sure. That is, sure. Yeah, it definitely exists there. I do. Think, I'm really uh, psyched that it was easy to make, so we'll never have to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, the seamless production on Trumbo. Well, I think the thing is, Brian Cranston only works well on TV because he's someone that's welcome in your home every week. And like, I think he's good when he Malcolm in the middle as well. That's the thing with TV too is that with both those, he knew he had time to get out his his impulses and ideas about a character, whereas you you look at him maybe in Trumbo or or even the smaller things like Argo and um last flag flying where he's doing really big shit in every scene because he's not patient with it. Cause he can't afford to be cause he's only got 90 minutes to do his shtick. Yeah. What's that movie he did last year where he like played a guy in a wheelchair and like Kevin. Oh, Hart- uh, it's the remake oh, yeah. of the untouchables, the upside. Yes. <laughs> is that what the untouchables is about? Uh, it's what the not the Kevin Costner Untouchables, but the other one. That's I what I thought. I was like, "Hold on, I've seen an Untouchables." That didn't sound like what that movie was about. I think I'm totally wrong. What is this called? It is the remake of something. Yes. This is riveting. I don't know. Podcast. So I know that while I'm looking up uh, what the upside is a remake of the Intouchables. All right. You got to go out there. You got to protect his upside. You protect <laughs> him. You protect me. Don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh. Just stand up. Just stand up. I bet you can stand up. Long titty um, upside having ass bitch. <laughs> Ankles don't be working, bitch. <laughs> um so one last um kind of nightmare detail of this movie is that some of them corpses in the movie were corpses god damn it no for this i'm going to strictly stick he logan pauled everybody (laughs) yes (laughs) catch him boxing Jim Jarmusch. If you can't YouTube see Richard's Live. face, it's terrible. You guys can't see Richard's face right now. He's on the he left is, of my Zoom call. He is aghast. <laughs> All right. Spike uh, made me watch a snuff film. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I am going to read this from an article um, called The Strained Making of Apocalypse Now on The Independent. And I'm just going to read this story as written. Uh, During shooting on the set of Kurtz's compound, a shocking discovery was made. One morning, Sheen's wife took the co-producer, Gary Fredrickson, uh, sorry, maybe Gray Fredrickson, uh, to the temple set, which was strewn with garbage and smelt terrible. You've got to clean this up, she demanded. It's a health risk. I won't allow Marty to work here. So Fredrickson went to see the production designer. They're complaining about you. There are dead rats in here. 
the production designer said, that's intentional. It gives it real atmosphere. There was a prop guy standing Those are Hollywood close rats. By. There was a prop guy standing close by who muttered, wait till he hears about the dead bodies, <laughs> which don't say that. They're already upset about the rats. Um, so here's an interesting sentence. Rumors had been flying about the dead bodies on the set, but Fredrickson <laughs> discounted them as ludicrous. Then he was taken to the prop store located behind a tent where everyone ate dinner. And inside and then the, was the, a the row sign of cadavers. fell and it just said morgue. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the guy was uh, like, no, 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 I swear, dining hall. So located behind the tent uh, was a row of cadavers all laid out. Uh, they had gotten these corpses to be the bodies that fell from the trees and that hung off the trees. The ones with like the uh, penises They'd gotten out? them from someone who supplied bodies to medical schools for autopsies, but it turned out he was a grave robber. The police showed up on our set and took all of our passports, says Fredrickson. They didn't know we hadn't killed these people because the bodies were unidentified. I was pretty sure I was pretty worried for a few days, but they got to the truth and put the guy in jail. Later, a huge truck showed up and soldiers started loading the bodies inside. Where do we take these? One of them asked. I don't know. Like a cemetery? Don't worry. We'll dump them somewhere. And they drove them away. The production had no idea what they did with them from this point on. So for the scenes in the movie, we had extras hanging from the trees, not dead bodies. Jesus fucking Christ. Now, again, this and the buffalo and everything happening was pretty much all good because it was happening in the Philippines. Right. Yeah, it was yeah. that was exact. I was sort of exactly. I don't think Coppola had a hand in in procuring grave Philipp- robbed dead bodies, but I do think that he went to the Philippines knowing such things could potentially happen. As a as a Filipino in his face self, like I can tell you, we're we're some shifty fools. We'll do shit like that. No, yeah, you got to get your picture made. No, but it's 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 wild that after that the guy that made the Godfather was doing shit like this. This is that grave robber just counting hundred dollar bills. Like, yeah, <laughs> the movie rolled into town and I cleaned up. They said I was crazy. Well, <laughs> they're right. Mm-hmm. Um, who's digging up bodies now, Mom? So this again is not a fun way to make a movie. Everyone's having heart attacks and seizures and and almost dying and killing themselves and there's dead bodies and 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 no one likes each other. What a picture. And so this is my question to, to that we've asked, picture. I think after all of these, do you is this worth it? Is this kind of thing worth it for even the greatest movie ever made? Is this is this effort and sacrifice and at many points uh like criminality worth it to get two and a half hours of apocalypse now? I think um, the uh, I, it would never be worth it now. And like there are movies that are made with sort of that sort of grueling experience now and always trying to recapture what like Francis Ford Coppola did here to get Revenant performances out of it. Yeah, they, they, they try yeah. to pull it all out. Like every director at some point in their heart wants to do what was pulled off in this movie. And is it worth it? Uh yeah, if you have the talent to do it, 
does everyone who thinks is worth it have that talent to do it? No. Sure. You know, and it's just like, if you can do it, yeah, do it. But realize the cost and that like it's high risk, high reward. But I mean, if you can get another apocalypse now out of this, then yes. And nobody has ever ever been able to give us another apocalypse now. Hmm. So, you know, it was worth it. But would it be worth it again? No. Kyle, how do you feel about Apocalypse Now? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. It's interesting. So this is, is it this one or is it Isle of Dr. Moreau that he's like taking his, Brando's taking his pants off in wide shots? Moreau. That's Isle of yep. Dr. Moreau where at that point he has, I think that this movie gave him license to do everything that is irritating about him after the fact because <laughs> everyone heralds his performance and uh, and everyone thinks it's incredible and he suddenly goes, well, I think I can, I'm allowed to do that now. And this is when he starts, this is when he starts taking his pants off. Here's the thing about him taking his pants off. I'm going to see take my pants off. He <laughs> would take his pants off to force people to shoot close-ups, to not mm-hmm. shoot his, him in wide shots. And I think that the guy who made Island of Dr. Moreau just pushed through it and was like, I think he tried to call his bluff. Yeah. There was a lot of like, um, I know that on Island of Dr. Moreau that Val Kilmer uh, like cut his pay immensely just so he could work with Marlon Brando just to have Marlon Brando shit on him the whole time. Ron Perlman had the same situation where he's in that movie basically worked for free to be around Brando and immediately became so disillusioned with it. It sucks that that could happen, but they say never meet your heroes. Right. But I mean, like you make apocalypse. Now you get some leeway in this world. Sure. But sometimes, you know, you overstay your welcome. Yeah. Apparently this movie uh, was edited from over a million feet of film. Oh my God. Oh my God. Those are those things you learn where it's like, okay, well, that that documentary style nature of it. I mean, that much shooting, mm. a good amount of it's going to come across. I'm sure a lot of what they used was odds and ends and you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. imagine different, different things like that. Imagine if most like movies were still edited with film like that now and like how making Baby Driver would have fucking sucked. No, yeah, those thing that editing wouldn't exist. That like yeah, sort of the live edits. I think that non-linear editing is sort of it's like oh it made it easy and fun to cut two frames out of something yeah where as opposed to oh cut two frames out of this thing that's going to t- that's like all for what no one will see um yeah there's like such intention to every single shot um I think we should highlight some of the players in the cast and crew fuck yes um so the f- top build actor is Marlon Brando, who we've discussed a lot. And I think that unfortunately it's an incredible performance. Like you hate to reward such like unprofessional and like horrible behavior. That's really the way to say it is. Unfortunately, it's incredible. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like <laughs> every time his, Kanye West demo. puts out like a good album. You're like, Fuck. yeah, it's like, why can't, <laughs> why can't you get it together? Why can't I quit you? <laughs> No, it's um, a, it's a it's a beautiful performance. Should he be top build? No, 
No, but he's the godfather. He's the biggest star in the movie. Right. He's the big face on the poster. Yeah. Um, and he, and when he, when he star, goes through, even the, when he goes through the dossier at the beginning, you start to get kind of stoked because you're yeah. like, oh yeah, we're we going to get some Brando BB. Also, so, um, for sure. He's not the face of the poster. Well, the, have you seen that new poster that came out for like the, the final the new poster is him rising from the water, right? It's yeah. It's Martin Sheen rising from the water. But if you yeah. look at the shadow, the shadow is Marlon Brando. Like, okay. In the water. The, original theatrical posters his kind of face glowing over the flaming bridge with a very little martin sheen up in the top um just a little martin it's also in that sort of that silence of the lambs thing of despite his being a small supporting part you could make the the you could make the argument that he is the main character of the movie even if he's not the protagonist i think he's the MacGuffin. Sure. I think that it, it, it's it, that's sort of the flip, right? That he yeah. he is the MacGuffin until you realize why he has ascended to this. And also, I think Martin Sheen has come to understand how, oh, I'm maybe one step off of this guy. I understand how this guy got here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, second build, someone we have not barely discussed. Robert Duvall. Oh my god, he's so good. So good. Like, on Robert, screen Robert for 11 Duvall minutes killing it. 11 minutes in a Award. in a two and a half hour movie being like one of the most memorable characters in so cinema. I've <laughs> always like been uh, like the famous like I love the smell of napalm in the morning like speech like monologue he gives. I've always like seen it as just that quote and like growing up on a military base, seen it as something just like crazy people shout. And I thought it was really just like that it was delivered a lot differently. And then watching it and I go, no, he's delivering it like someone in the military would. And this is like, well, because people deliver it like, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. (laughs) Exactly. They deliver bombing. Well, they think it's full metal jacket. Yes, yeah. it's turned into an Arlie Ermy quote. Yeah, and it's like, it's not. It's him being like, it's him cutting the shit with people while helicopters are going. Yeah. And he's almost like kind of trying to get them. He's almost in, like, it's. I read it as like almost embarrassment. Like, will you guys please get excited about this with me? I, I, th- I read it as him being like, like, he doesn't care that they're not proud. He goes, this is why you should be proud. Smell that? Sure. That's fucking victory. He's like, I'm because a specimen. I don't think he's We're playing all specimen. it. I don't walk away thinking of him as a monster. No, I think of him as like, a, he's just a very good employee and a very good manager. Like he's such I, a great middle manager. I've just yeah. met people like that, like uh, just interacting with people in the military, you know, that that is a sort of person, you know? Yeah. He's the guy who like manages Target, who has realized that it is life is just easier if I act like I love Target. Not yet. You found your calling. It's you know owning this Jamba Juice now. It's- well, and and you can a hundred percent imagine like he said they were an old cavalry unit. Like yeah. you can a hundred percent imagine that guy in a western 
that same character pretty much. Sure. You know what I mean? And he wouldn't be obsessed with surfing. It'd be something else. But that, that same charisma and character you could see in so many other things. He's so good. The surfing it's, obsession is such an, an odd so detail. So fucking great. Man. That could only come from it's his a sort of 60s California kid like him and Milius and, and Lucas. Mm-hmm. Um, and how predominant it is. It's so weird that he is, he's such a mission man. And then they go, Hey, that famous surfer you wanted is waiting for you. And you get to talk about, and there's the surfboard on the helicopter. Yeah. Well, Uh, or even like the guys like, ah, we can't go over there. It's too hairy. And then one of the dudes is like, yeah, I wish we could six foot breaks. And he's like, well, I mean, we could, we could hold it for a little bit. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's so great. He's like, because it's also, you get, it's, he becomes, he's endearing because he's trying to impress uh, Lance. Yeah. Yeah. Because he knows that he's immediately trying to get ass. The the moment we see this epic big colonel, we see him trying to impress somebody else instead of bullying. Also, Lance is this great archetype of like, I feel like in a lot of other movies, there's like the guy who was a prodigy or something. And then he went to like Vietnam and he's just never the same when he came back. It's like you actually get to see what makes a character like that, like just never the same again, because I don't feel like he's going to be like doing weird naked karate and punching mirrors in his hotel. Yeah, but he's just going to go back to his family and be fucking weird Uncle Lance now, you know, I think I think that that happened to that actor. Sam Bottoms, I believe, was on every drug he could get his hands on while making the movie. Fantastic. Why not? I mean, just a good idea. It was a real. I, another thing I read, read in this independent article is that it was a real like party at the hotel every night production. Yeah, well, because you're going through so much shit. Every, I mean, right. it's well, like a military thing. You know what I mean? Like, and you're also in the fucking Philippines where it's like everything's cheap to like drink and eat there, and like the locals want you to do that because you're gonna help them thrive and they can rip you off a little bit, so it turns into a big ass party. Right. Right. Uh, Martin Sheen played Captain Benjamin L. Willard. God damn it. It's a part that I think sort of destiny gave got it to him because I think he is distracting if he's Steve McQueen or Harvey Keitel or I guess Harvey Keitel wasn't much of anything by then, but, but Steve McQueen or Robert Redford or one of these sort of established names at the time. Yeah, it, honestly... Um, but also none of them can pull off the, the quiet stare that Martin Sheen gives oh. in this, you know, where it's like he's not he can convey everything he needs you to know with just like the twitch of an eyeball. And we see it and we know. And then the narration gives it to you if you don't know. Right. Um, and then we have sort of the the, the platoon. Uh, we have Frederick Forrest as chef. Crushing it. Crushing it. The only character with uh, like his own little backstory monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You just kind of know like the general beat of everybody else, but he, he, you get a little more out of chef. Chef's great though. I like chef. And like establishes the visual prototype of every like indie folk, like grungy rock star. Of right now, mm-hmm. like oh, yeah. the, the the mustache to like stubble and the quaffed hair and the like fuck you attitude. 
I know it's a trope in war movies. Is this the first war movie to have like, this is Dingo, I'm, this is Rex, this is Clean, this is Monkey, this is Baxter, you know what I mean? Like, And I'm Jean Benet Ramsey. Yeah, <laughs> it seems it could be because I mean I don't know if a if a movie had ever approached war with this sense of humor, at least like, you know sort of ironic and and dark sense of humor yet. Anti-war films typically stood as a more a, from a place of anger and not like lunacy. It's a dark comedy. No, it's a dark comedy. We should they should have shot it during the war. They they pushed out and waited for the war to stop. Cowards. Pussed out. What I say? They're cowards. Um, you got your Sam Bottoms as Lance. We talked about him. He makes it. It's weird that he kind of just like survives almost by default. There's not some yeah. big moment for him. He's well, he, he's he just like skates through. He's he just that like guy you go to the house the party with, you know, that like just ends up taking all the drugs and ends up OK and didn't get arrested, you know, and you're like, all right, let's go home. Sure. Yeah. You promised his mom <laughs> yes. he'd be all right. So you got to at least get him to the door. Well, I almost feel like the first time I watched the movie when they build up like this whole like, yeah, he's a big surfer. He's a big and then there's like so much emphasis put on him. I'm like, okay, well, he's going to die and you're going to feel like he had so much potential or whatever. But then they do what's even worse, which is like they leave him alive and just take away all that potential still. So now he's just like a shell walking to earth, which is another thing war does, which is nice that it doesn't just kill everybody off and be like, see, it sucks. It's like some of them, it tortures in other ways. Sure. Cause I think that, that there is a somewhat, I don't want to say happy ending, but, but Willard ends on, I think like a bit of a place of optimism where he is confronted with the ability to become Kurtz and he's choosing to leave instead, which I think is the sort of the only victory you can really ask for him. Right. Cause it's not even like the trip back to, to uh vietnam is going to be all that easy for him it's just the fact that he leaves and doesn't cave to psychosis is a bit of a win yeah i was thinking about like what's it going to be like to get past that bridge again yeah no it's not gonna be fun um you got larry this he's credited as larry fishburne who was 14 in this movie and lied about his age he was 14. he was 17 when the movie came out, which is the age of his character. So what a way to die, though, listening mm. to a tape of your mom telling you to come home with it still playing. Uh, and you don't. Yeah, you don't make it through the whole tape. Oh, like that's that's some good shit, man. That's just some good shit. Now, oh, I got that's... one more to throw at you. And I and again, I know Richard's got to take off here on this. Dennis Hopper as the American photojournalist. Mm. What? What? So this was my what an entrance. Hopper. What an entrance. Hopper himself. Hopper. So the thing about that role is that role, if that movie was made now, is not played by a Dennis Hopper type, even a Dennis Hopper at the time type. That's played by like a Jake Johnson. You know, that's uh, that, that's played sure. by yeah, like the dude from New Girl or one of those At like best you get dudes. like yeah. a Scoot McNary. Mm hmm. Yeah. Justin d- Long. But oh, well, now you're now that sounds good. 
That sounds good, but like my when point he pops is- up in Idiocracy, whenever he pops up in a weird cameo from like 2005, I'm like, all right, this is gonna be. Oh, a good him two and minutes. Zach and Mary make a porno when he's just like uh, <laughs> Brandon Routh's boyfriend. Yeah. Basically playing the same part in Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Like they're just clearly like that voice is very funny. Just keep yeah, doing it. We like it voice. when you go, oh yeah, do you like this? <laughs> uh, but yeah, that role wouldn't have the same weight though because Jake Johnson or someone of that nature uh, couldn't pull off the scenes where they're up close and he's like, listen, man, I was supposed to be willing to kill this guy. I'm not going to do it. Huh. <laughs> like a. None of those could pull, like, because Dennis Hopper is the only one that could pull off what that character pulls off. Right. And Dennis Hopper was apparently like that on set. He was a bit crazy. He was apparently a very nice guy, but he he bothered Brando. And so they're never in shots together. They never talk to each other. Brando hated him. You're round, man. You're just round as hell, man. Where's your hair, dude? Did they take your hair? Are they going to take all our hair now, man? You can imagine that that's a real line. He reads poetry aloud. He's mad if you take his picture. (laughs) The one year I went to Vegas was um, a year that Willem Dafoe had had like a &A, Q&A. Was he showing a movie or he just wanted to to talk? He was actually, uh, he spent the whole Q&A going, I wanted to show Antichrist, but they won't let me show Antichrist. <laughs> and uh, Jesus. then uh, like, in a, and then like someone's ringtone goes off and I like, I look around disgusted and I look at whose phone it is and it's Dennis Hopper turning his phone on silent. <laughs> and I think Dennis Hopper had money in Cine Vegas, right? Isn't that like, wasn't he, that his little trip? Yeah, that was up? his like festival. Yeah. And uh, he goes. He was like, "Sorry," <laughs> and put his phone away. But really tall, gangly um, man. Willem Dafoe's in, uh, Wikipedia opens. He is an American actor. He is known for his distinct gravelly voice. That seems <laughs> passive aggressive. <laughs> it's rude. Yeah, that's a bit much. Well, and has well nobody multiple called accolades. You got to lead with the accolades. Yeah, has received multiple accolades and is known for his raspy voice. Yes, <laughs> because like nobody has ever called Spider-Man he's the voice Spider-Man. guy. You know, he's got a couple of uh, awards or whatever. But the voice guy, you know, he's Gravel got Man? such what a weird guy. Because it's his frequent collaborators are a real one of these does not belong. It's Paul Schrader, Abel Ferrara, Lars von Trier, and Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> um. Those are the sort of major performances. Yeah. Did you want to say anything else on Dennis Hopper? I, I, I agree with you that, that you don't get as edgy a guy for this part anymore. Yeah. Like they would never, they would like the studio. If you pitch that to the studio, they would say no. And uh, there, I believe there's a moment on, um, this is from memory on hearts of darkness where Coppola is speaking to Dennis Hopper and, Coppola says, you're not saying your lines. Hopper says, you told me to forget them. Coppola says, you have to remember them first. So this is the kind of environment under which (laughs) Apocalypse Now was constructed. Really, honestly, Apocalypse Now sounds like if all of us made a movie together. With it, well, it's just like, <laughs> you know, like it's again. Uh, the, the way they talk to each other. It's like how it sounds like how I would be yelled at by all of you, and I would be the Dennis Hopper. You can see why Francis Ford Coppola 
I mean, his next kind of major movie is The Outsiders in 1983. And I would say he hasn't made a good movie since The Outsiders. And and The Outsiders does not resemble the work of, of, of somebody who made two Godfathers in Apocalypse Now and won the Palme d'Or twice. Well, like... What are the movies after that? Because I fuck with Jack, so we're not gonna. Uh, we're not yeah, gonna obviously say we've established you've fucked with Jack. Um, he made a lot of sort of anonymous movies. The eighties are one from the heart, Hammett, The Outsiders, and Rumblefish in the same year. The Cotton Club. Uh, you know, this is an, there's a lot of the Cotton here. Club. Uh, Peggy Sue got married. Oh, that's like a big um, deal. That movie. Uh, Tucker, that... The Man in His Dream, and The Godfather Part 3. Bram Stoker's Dracula, Jack, The Rainmaker, and then three movies I've never heard of. Youth it... Without Youth, Tetro, and Twixt. Do you think Bram Stoker's Dracula? Twixt. I've heard that Twixt. Bram Stoker's Twixt. Dracula. It's a vampire Twixt. movie with L family. Twixt is huh. where uh, a guy accidentally he bites into a magic Twix and becomes one for the whole movie. Becomes a yeah. talking Twix. <laughs> Someone accidentally eats the right side Twix when they should have eaten the left. But that Bram oh, Stoker is destined for the left. That Dracula movie might be a good one for the pod, though. Sure. Oh yeah. It's it'd be a good catch up. To see see where we can pick back up with. Francis Ford Coppola on the with other Frankie, time it was difficult. Yeah, Frankie Copes. He's now very into live broadcast cinema. This is his thing. He's published a book on how to make live feature films. Feature films which are cinematic in their construct and nature, but broadcast live. I don't I still don't understand this. I read as much of the book as I could comprehend. It seems he's sort of barking up the wrong tech tree here (laughs) he's like deciding at like 80 that he wants to be some sort of usher of the next generation of film right when that's not that's not really an option open to you anymore no yeah and his kids did it well and he he sort of spawns there's sort of the coppola group right of his Daughters are all making movies, and his Nicholas Cage is his nephew, Jason Schwartzman. Talia Shire is his sister. Gia Coppola is his granddaughter. Like there are a lot of sort of Coppolas um, stemming from yeah. him, and, and it, it's amazing amount. for such a, an incredible seventies to have such disappointing rest of his career. And it, I think, there's no way it's not as a result of this movie. Well, I think also just sometimes something breaks you and sometimes you make the thing you were supposed to make and then you're good. You know, like Hmm. J.K. Rowling made the thing she was supposed to make and now we're supposed to ignore her forever. You know, (laughs) it was like (laughs) the seven Harry Potter books was where she was supposed to end. And it's like sometimes you make your art and you have nothing more creative than you, you know. It's what's interesting is that Lucas is clearly that, but he, his one thing was the beginning of something and had to be. Yeah, like he made his art out the gate, kind of, you know. 
Well, and even, I mean, even Star Wars, that like you were clearly here to create Star Wars. Unfortunately, you made it part four, requiring at least five more of these. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's also like, like, I, I feel like, uh, like Jerry Seinfeld said kind of the same thing, uh, which he was asked, like, you know, with the success of Curb, you know, why haven't you ever. Why haven't we ever seen another, you know, Seinfeld driven vehicle? And he's like, I feel like I was television wise. I was I was made to create the show Seinfeld. And I don't feel like my sensibilities or knowledge or anything would translate to a different show. I also can't date another 17 year old. And and I only wrote that show off of that sweet 17 year old poon. (laughs) (laughs) The muse is gone. The muse, she's gone. She's in college now. Gross. What's the deal with women my age? What's the deal? Women my age. They seem to see right through me. <laughs> well, does anybody have any final thoughts on 1979's Apocalypse Now? Yeah, that's a good movie. That's a good movie. That's a that's is, a good is, movie. Here's a question. Is there a movie that you've been told is one of the greatest movies of all time that you absolutely did not get the the point? The Graduate. Oh, that's a big one too. That's I'm with you there. I I I don't I don't yeah, get it. I don't I don't care for The Graduate either. I I I I, I tried and then um uh, someone was like, how dare you? Uh, the graduate is a piece of art. And I said, can you explain it to me? And then like that dude died and never explained it to me. So I'll never understand <laughs> <Jesus>. the graduate. <laughs> uh, slacker, My movie slacker. Oh, the, the first Linklater movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, it didn't click for me. I also, I, I piss off a lot of people saying this, but, uh, I, I do not find, Ooh, this is gonna this could be a big hot take. This could be a dividing hot take. I do not find the Big Lebowski charming or that entertaining. I don't like that movie. Uh can I is this a safe place to say that I don't like the Big Lebowski? It's and a that totally like safe place. Pinheads <laughs> is a better so bowling movie. So. I really like it. I don't I think it's dead center on their filmography. I don't think it's the next coming of anything yeah. I, uh, I but i yeah, like I the... make it clear i don't think it's bad like i can watch it and it's fine but i'm i watch it and i do i can't help but wonder i'm like this is like some people's like i just greatest film they've ever seen i think I've i really never cared towards like i gravitate towards like the cynical california story sure sure and the I, sort and of I like, like that and and with it. without you rarely see that without a hollywood angle Mm-hmm. That it it very much is a, a Raymond Chandler story, um, and I'm I'm also a sucker for that wrong character in the wrong genre, that sort of Shaun sure. of the Dead or Scott Pilgrim. Sure. Edgar Wright sort of is big that, on that this sort of a uh, Jamie Fox in Spider Man Two. Right, well, we're talking about this eventually, but I but that I that's why the, that's where the Big Lebowski lands for me. Of like, what if a regular Coen Brothers character? was told he should like was Raymond Chandler. But right. li, but instead of being the the look, I don't it, it's 2020. I don't need to interpret the fucking Big Lebowski. 
but I think I like the I like the California darkness of it without the sort of easy Hollywood punchlines. Yeah, I guess I just wish he was a bigger Lebowski. Yeah, the biggest Lebowski, twenty twenty. When I watch when I watch the movie, he's a little underwhelming as a Lebowski. So when I'm watching it, I'm like, I've seen bigger. I feel like this is we're running a little short, and even though it's pretty late on my end, I think we need to talk about the news of the week that Richard uh, sort of hinted at, um, and we've been seeing it online, and we've been kind of reading the, the developments. Rick Moranis got punched the other day. <laughs> trying to figure out who did it he was punched by the film the amazing spider-man 2 that's the leading (laughs) so was i (laughs) the leading working theory yes we hey this podcast if we can get uh 10 new patreon subscribers we will start a manhunt we will track down the puncher Look, I'll take 10 podcast subscribers. Yeah, and 10 yeah. free podcast subscribers. <laughs> yeah, just click subscribe and comment, rate, review, subscribe. At this point in the uh, episode, if you post. haven't subscribed, I don't know what you're doing, no, but get your friends to. I, I did mean to bring this up. Martin Sheen, of course, in this movie, plays one of our finest Uncle Ben's in The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. Um, and I... we've we've Look... We talk about us standing. Peter, you don't know what I've seen. (laughs) You don't know what I've seen, Peter. We're talking about sort of the greatest movies of all time, movies that are at least considered the greatest movies of all time. And Mm -hmm. and I really, I I personally understand what The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is doing, uh, which is probably why it connects with me, is that I'm engaging with it the way (laughs) it's asking me to engage with it. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, um, and of course, yeah, you got Jamie Foxx. Yeah, you got masculine. What? What do you? Th- we've been texting about this a lot. I, I think we, I just wanted to talk about it for a sec. What do you think of like this weird folding of? Is this what people want? I think we're being gaslit. I don't yeah, think any of it's that, happening. Explain that. I think like we're gonna get like glimpses of it because there's gonna be like things that touch upon it in other universes, but. I don't think we're getting what we think we're getting. I don't think we're getting the multiverse. Like, I don't think we're getting like uh, any sort of spider verse movie. I think they realize that Jamie Foxx is still kind of viable as Electro and they're just folding him into the universe in a different way. They even said that the like costume and everything will be different and he won't be blue. I think it's just the same thing they did with the J Jonah Jameson. Yeah. Oh, that's so upsetting. That will be more upsetting than if they just go full full in. But I, it'll be interesting to see if this sort of fan outpour, which is what's happening right now, a, a lot of people being stoked on the idea, will, as we've seen it before, could possibly shift their direction. Also, the, how just how well Spider-Verse did and was received and stuff, you know, it has to make them think like maybe... Maybe people like if they're totally misreading what people like about that movie, they're like, well, we need more Spider-Men's. Sure. Well, this might just be like um, like that sort of thing. And if the Spider-Men's sort of thing happens, it's just Marvel the, in the MCU giving in to being written in the same way that the DCEU was sort of written by its fans, you know, instead of written by people who know. how. Yeah, to write it seems a like the raw. Su- that's the surprising turn. 
is it seems like the least original idea. But it could well, it, be. I my my theory is that just Jamie Foxx got some sort of airtight contract. That too, like he was supposed to come back. I I don't see him as viable. I'm looking at this like after 2014, he makes. I mean, in 2014, he makes five movies. Well, he's like the um, host of a TV show now. I think his quote went yeah. down. You know, and, and I he think... makes what Sleepless, Baby Driver, Robin Hood, Just Mercy, and Project Power between. Spider-Man and now. Well, I I think Project Power did kind of hit pretty well. And so there was sort of that negotiating power. And I think uh, a lot of this might just not happen. Negotiating Project Power. You know, Negotiating Project Power. I was holding myself back. Um, (laughs) But again, I think it's just the same thing of like the way they're going to acknowledge the multiverse is just the fact that, hey, so in that universe – that's the way that Electro looks. But in this one, this is how he looks, you know? And it's just going to be that. Right. It's not the same character at all. It's just the same actor. The same way that J. Jonah James which, is Alex Jones. Which is just so the wrong... You need to lean into the Amazing Spider-Man 2-ness Why? of everything. The thing, the thing is, is like, is that the next thing that we're all going to have to pretend to be like the, like the Spider-Man multiple Spider-Mans does excite me but like if they do that multiverse thing are they going to have uh Terrace Terrace Howard like walk out of the shadows in like another war machine suit <laughs> Right like, how deep are we this. going here Yeah <laughs> I'm war machine main <laughs> like, Yeah I told you next time yeah, looks like next time finally came and he steps out of the shadows. Well, you get like, like Edward Norton as the hit. Hulk. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the one back. call you don't make. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of like where does this end? Like, is this no? But how is that a story? Is these my thing. Is, yeah, cameos don't make for movies, and I don't see Tobey Maguire showing up for six months of work to really make a. Because they've done that. They made Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, see like, what you get other than one scene out of this. Yeah, uh, and someone's theory was that like Spider-Man's going to come out and it's going to be like a, sort of an overarching thing in the MCU is that the multiverse after all of this is sort of being like unwritten with like what WandaVision's doing and that like uh, the new Doctor Strange is going to be there to tie that all up and that's sort of going to be right. an overarching thing between it. And I was like, that's dumb. Just don't do that. <laughs> do you know? Just Well, yeah, we got to find the right person for you to email. Yeah, everyone's famous email is like, I, I bet Kevin.feige at gmail.com works. Well, listeners, try it out. Tell him to. <laughs> Everyone email you know, kevin.feige you know. at gmail.com and say, get Richard in a room with you. Just say that. Don't we even say you, who the Richard is. Punched, we know you punched Rick Moranis. <laughs> we know you Let punched Richard. Richard have his multiverse rewrite, goddammit. That actually transitions perfectly, though, uh, into into my little surprise pick. Um, <laughs> yes, tell us what is you happening can, you next can have You can have three Spider-Mans. Um, all on on screen, and you would still have less injured Spider-Mans than my pick, uh, which is deviating from the movies. Uh, and oh. we're going to cover the musical Spider-Man: Turn Off the Dark, and we'll be singing the entire Fuck episode. Yes. Yeah, the whole I, episode will be a musical and swinging around on ropes that break. <laughs>
I actually um do own that soundtrack. I bought it on iTunes uh, when it dropped <laughs> because I just had to know. Hey, you know, like I, I was. I wouldn't through... use. Did that album drop? I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't quite use that phrase. Yeah. It Hey-o. dropped on its neck and fractured its C two vertebrae. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that'll be what we uh, what we cover what we cover next week. Uh, I'm I'm Kyle Anderson. You can follow me on Instagram at Kyle Anderson Comedy. Uh, yeah, check out my other podcast, Extremely Internet. I'm Spike Kitchell. You can find me on Instagram at H G Spike. That's it. I, I'm Richard Humphrey. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at richneasy.com. Uh, you can dot uh, com. <laughs> at rich www.richneasy.com he's a big w. fan of 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 uh tracy yeah. jordan's <laughs> other yeah just other rich Neasy. um thinking of changing my uh at to uh, uh thick moranis uh let me know what you guys think in the comments Money talk, stack influence, put you back into it.